evening, everyone, on this interesting, really interesting Sunday night. The Oscars are on. In fact, I think they're still on. They may be on by the time we end the show. I I was asking just a few moments ago who won, and I think the best picture is Shape of Water, which is a really interesting uh, event because it's a major science fiction film. And science fiction films, I don't think, have ever won best picture. I know they won were special effects and special awards and directors and all that. I mean, 2001, perhaps one of the, if not the greatest uh, sci-fi film of all time, did not win Best Picture. It wasn't even in the running. It, it won for special effects, which is the usual um, kind of catch-all. This is interesting. This is maybe maybe some kind of a bellwether. The reason that I wanted to talk about the Oscars before we get to our main subject tonight which is going to be Russia and what's going on. I mean, what's really going on. And we we have someone who I think will be able to give us a roadmap. Probably the best person I can think of to give us a roadmap to what's going on with Russia. But before we get there, and we're going to connect Russia and NASA, as you're going to hear later in the evening, I wanted to do a NASA link to the Oscars because, well, it's just really interesting. This may be in the category of trivia, or maybe not. So if you go to the other side of midnight.com and you click on the graphic for tonight's show, the big map of Russia, that will take you to the guest page tonight. Scroll down in radio with pictures to my items, show items, Richard items. The number one item is NASA and the Oscars share a golden space link. Here's the link. NASA is about to, in a year or so, maybe uh, maybe a little more now because it was delayed, is going to launch the successor to the Hubble telescope called the James Webb Space Telescope. Now, the James Webb Telescope is much, much bigger than Hubble. And because it's designed to peer to the edge of the universe, literally 13.7 or 8 billion light years away, where things are rushing away from us because of the redshift at close to the speed of light, Everything is downshifted. In other words, when you when you redshift things, the frequency goes way, way down. So what starts out in our universe, like close by, like Andromeda, two million light years away, as visible light or maybe ultraviolet, <clears throat> by the time you get out there to 13.8 billion light years away, the redshift is literally downshifting everything from the ultraviolet into the infrared meaning you can't see it, and it's below the red part of the spectrum, but everything is there. It's just been color shifted way down because of the velocity in the model that things are receding from our particular vantage point. So the Webb telescope is built with this huge segmented mirror to basically capture infrared light. And to do that most efficiently, it's not coated with aluminum or silver, you know, you, one, one of the usual ways of coating mirrors for telescopes on Earth, it's coated with gold. In fact, if you look at the picture under the link, uh, NASA and the Oscars share a golden space tech link, that is the segmented mirror, the huge mirror of the uh, James Webb Telescope, which is going to be launched into orbit sometime in the next year, plus, and parked out far beyond the ability of uh, shuttles or spacecraft to reach it. I mean, once it's out there, it's out there, and it's got to be totally operated by remote control. Well, the gold mirror is what I'm going to focus on, because over the years, NASA has tried several techniques to basically plate gold on mirrors that will withstand the rigors of space, the vacuum, the outgassing, all that good stuff in outer space. And they found that the normal technique used by telescope makers for about a century here on Earth doesn't really work very well, which is called vacuum sputtering. So what they've done is harken back. This is going to you know, really please our Egypt files. They've harkened back to a technique that James Brown, one of our researchers who we called upon many months ago to do a show, has found in ancient Egyptian artifacts where the art of electroplating apparently was in use. Now, with electroplating, you basically have gold and you have a bath and you have wires and you have a power source and you basically electrify <clears throat> excuse me the object that you want to plate with gold and because it's electrified and it has a charge 
in the bath, in the solution, the gold migrates in solution to the object and it covers it with layers of gold. Now, why has NASA done that? Because it turns out that this process, this ancient, ancient thousands of year old process works extraordinarily well to build up very, very compact and durable gold layers that basically are, well, they basically preserve the reflectivity of solid gold, whereas the vapor deposition technique does not. And with every space mission, what you want is the maximum efficiency. So you want your gold mirror to reflect as much infrared light into the detectors of the Webb telescope as possible because you're looking at things that are 13.8 billion light years away and they're really, 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 really dim. So every photon counts. So what does this have to do with the Oscars? Well, the Oscars over the years have used the vapor deposition technique. They put their little statues in a vacuum. They have an electric current that sputters gold from a, a gold uh, uh, cathode or anode into the vacuum. And the gold atoms played out on the nearest object, which is the statue, you know, Oscar. The problem is the gold peels off. It rubs off. It's not very durable. It looks great on television, you know, tonight. But in the future, you know, as people pick up and they handle and they take it off the mantelpiece and put it back on the mantelpiece and they take it off and they show it to their friends, the gold goes away. So apparently the Oscar folks contacted NASA to get in line for this extremely interesting subcontractor who has developed over the years this electroplating process to electrically plate gold on the Oscar statues. And so tonight, all those gleaming gold statues, they will remain gold forever because the gold is as durable as the gold on the mirror of the Webb Space Telescope. How's that for trivia? Now, how does this connect with Russia? Well, I'm not going to give the game away yet. We're going to uh, have a conversation with my guest this morning, Dr. Richard Spence. And in the, in the process of the conversation, you will then hear the connection between Russia, Putin, Donald Trump, NASA, and the gold statues. So without further ado, Dr. Richard Spence is a professor of history at the University of Idaho. His interests include Russian and military history, along with espionage, occultism, and anti-Semitism. Huh, right up our alley, I guess. His major published works include Boris Savinkov, Renegade on the Left, Trust No One, The Secret World of Sidney Riley, Secret Agent 666, Aleister Crowley, British Intelligence and the Occult, and Wall Street and the Russian Revolution, 1905 to 1925. Richard is the author of numerous articles on revolutionary Russia, intelligence, and national security in the Journal for the Study of Anti-Semitism, American Communist History, The Historian, New Dawn, and other publications. He's been interviewed on many other programs, including this one, of course, several times. In fact, I've lost count how many times he's been back with us. He's been a commentator and a consultant for the History Channel, the International Spy Museum. I didn't know there was an International Spy Museum. Radio Liberty and documentaries produced by the Russian Cultural Foundation. Richard, welcome to the other side of midnight once again. Thank you for having me on, Richard. Well, as my grandmother used to say, it's nice to have you with us. Um, where should we begin? The, the reason I wanted to talk to you tonight is because there's something very bizarre going on in Russia, the old Soviet Union, that so harkens back to, you know, my salad days of duck and cover. And I asked you the question, I guess, last night, you know, when are, when are we about to enter a new Cold War? And you kind of hit me upside the head with, we're already in one. You want to start there? Yeah. Are we in a Cold War? When haven't we been in a Cold War, at least as far mm. as the U.S. and Russia is concerned, or at least in, in, within the 20th century? You could argue that the Cold War between the United States and Russia began in 1917. It began when the Bolsheviks seized control. Uh, and it wasn't until 1933 that the United States even recognized that government. So from 1917 to 1933, although there was a 
fair amount of trade going on and there was cultural contact, there was no diplomatic relation between the United States and Russia. Now, FDR changed that in 33. Uh, nevertheless, from 33 up until 1941, there was still a Cold War in the sense that both countries were suspicious of each other, carrying out major espionage operations. Uh, the Soviets certainly had the bigger one during that time. They carried out a kind of freewheeling penetration of just about anything they could in the United States in the 30s. All of that changed in 1941, of course, when they became our allies. And then some might recall, if you go back and look at films like Mission to Moscow, which was a kind of wartime propaganda, which even portrayed Stalin as being, well, almost benevolent. And that lasted from, you know, the wartime uh, camaraderie between 1941 and 1945 ended abruptly. And it really ended with the defeat of Nazi Germany in May 1945. Because here's a little interesting tidbit that I think often gets forgotten when people talk about the Second World War and U.S.-Soviet relations. In 1941, the Soviet Union was invaded by Hitler. And then at the end of that year, because of the attack on Pearl Harbor, the United States found itself at war with Nazi Germany, and Italy, by the way, and Japan. But Russia was not at war with Japan. There was no war between the Soviet Union and the Empire of Japan until August 1945. Oh, that was just before the end of the war. That just, whole, uh... just barely days before the end of the war. And that was all part of an agreement that was negotiated in the defeated Germany at Potsdam in July 1945. And this is when Harry Truman unveiled the existence of the atom bomb, which you know, the Soviets knew about, but he was making it public. And in which it was agreed that the Soviets would, after a period of time to redeploy troops from Europe to the Far East, would enter the war against Japan. And they did. And they overran Japanese-controlled Manchuria. And here's a thing that brings us up to the present. They overran Japanese-controlled Korea up until about the 38th parallel. And in fact, it is that Soviet entry into the war against Japan at the very end of the war in the Far East that really led to the division of the Korean Peninsula and the existence of North Korea that, of course, is an, an ongoing issue. Mm. But you see, the thing is, is that in the Second World War, the USSR and the USA were only allies or really co-belligerents against Germany. We were never, except for that couple of weeks period at the very end of the war, allies against Japan. In fact, in 1941, in order to make sure they weren't going to have to fight a two-front war with the Japanese and the Germans, Stalin and the Japanese signed a non-aggression pact. And that lasted all the way up until, again, the middle of 1945. So you see, in 42 and 43, during the battles of Guadalcanal and even up to Iwo Jima and Okinawa, the United States was, war, was at war with Japan, but the Soviet Union was not. It was a neutral country. So when we talk about the U.S. and the Soviet Union being allies during World War II, practically speaking, we were only allies in half the war. Now, one of the things that that speaks to is that even during this period when you would think that being at war with Nazi Germany, the period of closest collaboration, notice that there was also a critical difference. The Soviet Union wasn't at war with Japan because it wasn't in its national interest for it to be so. It had to concentrate its efforts against Germany. The United States, because it had been attacked by Japan, really didn't have much of a choice. Our choice was whether or not we were going to throw a lot of weight into the war against Germany, which we opted to do because we had the military potential to do that. But so even in this period when you think that we would be cooperating the most closely, there was still, and they were still going their separate ways. And of course, behind the scenes, there was still suspicion and espionage. For instance, one of the things that the Soviets were gathering information on all through the Second World War, while they were allies with us, us in Europe, was the Manhattan Project. Mm. Uh, because they were very anxious to acquire an atom bomb, and we were working on one. Uh, and they again succeeded in penetrating the Manhattan Project. And this is where the famous Rosenbergs come in. The Rosenbergs come into it and others. 
Uh, remember, they were only a small part of what was a very large operation, some parts of which are still unknown. Now, when you say unknown, do you mean from the Soviet side or from the U.S. CIA side? There were Soviet agents who collected information on the Manhattan Project whose identities to this day are unknown. Oh. There is a variety of speculation as to who they might have been, but nobody is entirely sure. One of them, I think, unless there have been some kind of recent discovery, was a uh, an agent that went under the code name of Pears or Persian, P-E-R-S. Uh, I don't think there's been any kind of satisfactory conclusion as to who Pears was. And uh, that was probably one of the most important agents. Wasn't there a suspicion that Oppenheimer himself was was potentially that 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 leak? I don't know whether there was a suspicion that he was pairs, but there were suspicions all along about Oppenheimer's connection to the Communist Party, which he had had some connection to. And yes, there were those who suspected that Oppenheimer was the chief mole in the whole operation. Well, wasn't uh, that why his security clearance, uh, like you know Kushner's, was? done away with and he only got it back just before he died with on, on under John Kennedy basically yeah hmm so and that goes and that, that, it goes back to the idea that there were there were penetrations that were taking place and you weren't sure I mean the Rosenbergs again were just really a kind of small part of that operation Patsy's or did they actually do substantive things what they basically did was to repackage information that was sent to them from Los Alamos, mostly stuff coming from Ethel Rosenberg's brother, a guy named David Greenglass. And he had a fairly, uh, he wasn't a physicist, but he worked in, he was a military personnel, uh, an army guy, and he was able to make drawings and get diagrams, maybe some materials. And what, what the Soviets were doing uh, as any good operation, is that they were sort of going at the the Manhattan Project from a number of different angles and, and, and from a number of different penetrations. So what was happening is that information was coming through a variety of agents there and elsewhere, different parts of the program. That was then fed into controlling agents who then sent it back eventually to Moscow Center. And there you have people who do what they always do with intelligence – begin to put it together, begin to compose this mosaic. So you're getting a little bit from this person, you're getting a little bit from someone else, you're getting a little bit here. But if you're lucky and you begin to put these pieces together, the picture begins to emerge. So it's really a connecting the dots operation. Yes, it's connecting the dots. And the Rosenbergs were a couple of those dots, but not much more. Well, they almost sound like just a mail drop, like a, a, a pass-through in the real... The real source of the leak was at Los Alamos here north of me here in New yeah. Mexico tonight. And then the question is, how did the Soviets, given the incredible super secrecy around the whole idea of an atomic bomb, how did they even get the idea that we were working on something like that? Well, that probably went back. There was a fellow that I've been interested in. Uh, I don't think we get you know, too off on him, too far off on him. There was a Soviet agent who, in fact, was the first Soviet agent in the United States to actually pass information back to Moscow that dealt with the Manhattan Project. And he was a fellow with a very un-Russian sounding name of Arthur Adams. Mm. Uh, and Arthur Adams was, he was essentially an electrical engineer uh, by training, and he'd worked uh, in the recording industry and radio he had a number of very honest jobs through the 30s. Arthur Adams was a fellow who had come to the United States as an immigrant from the Russian Empire sometime before World War I, uh, had worked in Canada and in the U.S. And then after 1917, he already had revolutionary political convictions. Uh, he eventually went back to the Soviet Union around 1919. He started out around 1919, 1920 running a, a technical information bureau within something called the Soviet Government Bureau. Uh, this, again, is slightly arcane history, but stuff people should know. I said a little while ago that there were no diplomatic relations between the United States and Soviet Russia from 1917 to 1933. Well, hang on, Richard. Hang on. Yeah. 
And by the way, we're getting terrible feedback from the speakers on that computer. If there's something we can do that would be useful. Uh, the reason this is not arcane is because it looks like Putin's speech the other day is doing what the Soviets did back at World War II. They're lifting a whole bunch of American technologies, nuclear technologies, like this nuclear ramjet missile he was bragging mm -hmm. about, mm -hmm. which is which is directly from something that came out of our AEC called Project Pluto, and then a follow-on called Project Timberwind. So the Soviets have been taking our technology for decade after decade, repackaging it and palming it off as their own. Well, it's it's industrial espionage. Uh, and that's one of the things this fellow I mentioned, Arthur Adams, basically pioneered in the U.S., often working for American companies coming in and out. He had connections with Ford Motor and Chrysler in the, and was was acquiring technology or technological breakthroughs that sometimes, even though they appeared in the U.S., were not exploited there, but they mm -hmm. were found to have application there. I mean, it's one of those things that, you know, it's just one of the things that you do, especially if you're starting from a position of being technologically behind or trying to play catch-up, which the Soviets certainly were in the, in the 20s and the 30s, rather than waste all of that time and energy. I mean, think of it this way. Think of all the time and energy you can save by simply, well, stealing what your opponents have come up with <laughs> instead of spending all that time spending the money and the research. Let them spend spend the R&D money and then you acquire the benefits. Well, that sounds very efficient. It's very efficient. It's very cost effective. And they used to accuse the Japanese of being imitative. Well, it's it's uh, well, you know, imitation is also the sincerest form of flattery, but it certainly is a is a technique in in espionage. Always let, let the other side do the heavy lifting if you can. Speaking of the Oscars tonight and this sci-fi picture win, which I am fascinated by. I mean, I think this portends things to come, but that's an aside. Did you ever hear the story of John Campbell and astounding science fiction magazine in the forties, at the height of the Manhattan Project? And the FBI guys that went and visited him at the uh, studio, at the studios, at the editorial office of the magazine in New York City. I have not, but I think you're going to tell me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you and several thousand around the world. Okay. John Campbell. John Campbell was the editor and publisher of this very avant-garde science fiction magazine called Astounding Science Fiction. Ah. Yeah. John Campbell created the modern era of science fiction. He mentored. Arthur Clarke, Isaac Asimov, Robert Heinlein, uh, Frederick Pohl, Lester Dell. I mean, you, the list goes on. The The golden age of science fiction was John Campbell's creation. And he ran a story, I forget who the writer was, uh, in the magazine sometime in the late 40s before the, the detonation of the first bomb here in, in, in New Mexico. And it was basically about the creation and detonation of an atomic bomb. And the FBI read it, freaked out, because they obviously knew there was this secret project, Manhattan. They rushed to Manhattan, rushed to his offices, and demanded who the spy was who had leaked to him this critical information. And, of course, he was dumbfounded because it was, quote, fiction. They then ordered him to literally go around the country, you know, obviously through surrogates, and take every copy of the magazine off the newsstands with that story. It was a short story, I think. And he successfully argued them to think another way. He said, look, guys, if we do that, the Russians and the, and the, and the um, uh, you know, Nazis and the bad guys are going to know that in that book, in that magazine, something critical to the war effort appeared. He said, it's better just to let it go through and it'll just be another sci-fi story. So ultimately, the government backed down, which is kind of amazing in the war, and they let the story be published. And I've always wondered, did the Soviets pick up on that? Because they're sharp people. Did they pick up on that as maybe that's not that far ahead of the, st of the state of the art of 1944-45? It's possible. If nothing else, it might have been one other dot that was collected along with all the other ones. To be collected and assimilated and, and organized. Yeah, you're looking for 
you know, you mentioned something that's kind of interesting because uh, it's been suggested that, that one of the ways you can try to find what black budget projects may be going on is if you were, you know, if you had the time and the interest to go through scientific literature and you might find that suddenly there have been a whole spate of stories, or not stories, but, well, it could be stories, but of research about a particular field, I don't know, torsion physics or something like that, <laughs> that would come out. And then they vanish. Okay, There's all this activity. There's a lot of exchanges going on. And then suddenly no one's doing this anymore. And that could be mean one of two things. It could mean that everybody just decided that it was a stupid idea and dropped it. Nothing came of it. Or tell you what, hold it there. We're at yeah. the bottom of the hour. We're going to pick up with my guest of the morning, Dr. Richard Spence. We're talking about the Soviet Union, the Russians, the first Cold War. Is he right? Are we in the middle of another one? Or did the Cold War never really end? I mean, that's going to be an interesting thing I'm going to ask when we return. You're on the other side of midnight. My name's Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. Don't go away. to the first hour of The Other Side of Midnight. Be sure to catch our complete live show every Saturday and Sunday night at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, for a full three hours of this kind of exploration. And be sure to visit theothersideofmidnight.com as you listen so you can follow our special Radio with Pictures guest page simultaneously. The Kinthea, our hardworking producer, specifically prepares to illustrate the topics discussed each show. Why? because there is vital additional information on that Radio with Pictures guest page that I assure you will immeasurably enhance your understanding and enjoyment of what our guests are describing. I mean, would you rather listen to a guest talk about NASA images of ancient artifacts on Mars or simultaneously be able to follow the official NASA images showing you, as you're listening, the ruins? If you'd like to listen at your convenience to all our shows, including our unique Radio with Pictures feature, please visit theothersideofmidnight.com and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. Okay, what do you get with your Club 19.5 membership, besides helping the show literally stay on the air? Well, first of all, you will exclusively, this is not available to the general public, enjoy our enhanced ad-free podcast, courtesy of Chris Bell automatically downloading all the latest The Other Side of Midnight shows directly to your favorite podcast device so you can listen when you want to. Further, as a full Club 19.5 member, you will gain exclusive access to our The Other Side of Midnight 24-7 chat server, what I can't help calling the Open Hailing Frequencies Room, which is available only to members 24-7. Now, during the show, that's where you will find other 19.5 members and sometimes even members of the bridge crew, my guests, and even me uh, when I have time. Regardless, you can always relay live questions to me during the show just by going to the open hailing frequencies room. Of course, when we're not on the air with your 19.5 membership, you can visit our club 19.5 radio archives anytime and download all our shows directly to your computer which will automatically provide you a screen size that allows you to really examine the remarkable images Kinthea posts for each show. Okay, <clears throat> here's where I need to get kind of super serious. Club 19.5 is how our show is currently solely supported. In my hopefully not vain attempt to keep commercials <clears throat> to a minimum, if you're concerned about keeping us on the air, if you want to hear information that has been vetted far more than perhaps any other show, the best way to ensure that is to join Club 19.5 and get your friends and family to join too. And if you don't know already, when I drop by open hailing frequencies, you can even ask me directly what the ultimate meaning is behind 19.5, literally the most exclusive club in the world. 
Please join me and my interesting guests on this very stream every Saturday and Sunday night at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, and be sure to come back and listen to our live three-hour shows. Thanks for listening, and now, back to the show. Breaking the torque while backing it out, the fastener is that the uh, body rotation. And welcome back to the other side of midnight for this Sunday night, March 4th, the night of the Oscars. I'm still fascinated that a science fiction story took the first place honors, best movie of the year. And I have a feeling that that's a harbinger of some interesting things to come. So, Richard, um, the Soviets slash Russians started very early in this game playing catch up by letting us do all the hard work. And then they would swoop in and take the technology, put a few finishing touches and then palm it off as their own. Is that what Putin is now doing? I mean, I have I've been fascinated that there's been this apparent rapprochement between, you know, President Putin and President Trump. And everybody is wondering, what is that really all about? Why is uh, is Trump never saying bad things about uh, uh, Putin and vice versa? I mean, I haven't heard, heard Putin ever take out after Trump personally. And then this this you know presentation a couple, three days ago comes out and it, it sounds like something right out of the height of the old Cold War. What's really going on? Well, one of the things that is very important to keep in mind is that there's a presidential election coming up in Oh, in Russia. three weeks, yeah. Yes, on the 18th. So keep that in mind. So what Putin, the, uh, the speech you're talking about, was basically his equivalent of the State of the Union speech. This was in front of the Duma, you know, and he's supposed to show up with something to say. I mean, it's like a president at the State of the Union speech. You don't want him to show up and have nothing to report, nothing good to say. Uh, this is a time when new initiatives and grand things are, are unveiled. That's that's what the whole thing is for. So the some of this, I think, can be chalked up to pre-election rhetoric. And even though Putin is hands down the favorite to win the election, he wants to win big. And I don't think from his past behavior that he's a man to take anything for granted. Uh, this was his moment to present a image of strength and competence uh, in, in front of the Russian people. And that's what he did. He, he took advantage of the bully pulpit that was that was open to him. He unveiled or talked about, to one degree or another, five different new types of weapons. And one of them is, I think, what you've been talking about. I, I think we're talking about the same thing, the, the nuclear-powered cruise missile. missile. Yep, yep, yep. And yeah. without shielding. Yeah. You know, one of the things about Project Pluto and Timberwind on our side was they were incredibly dirty. Mm -hmm. They would leave a trail of radioactive debris that would kill people under the ground track of these things. He's talking about a, a, a nuclear missile, nuclear-powered missile with a nuclear warhead that would wend its way around the planet, you know, avoiding radar, avoiding ships, avoiding, you know, the MU systems and all that till it attacked us or its targets from an unexpected quarter. And every piece of real estate that thing flew over, people under it would die just of ingesting the particulates being emitted by this nuclear ramjet, which basically takes air in, you know, heats it to superheated uh, temperatures in, 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 in a ramjet and then squirts it out the back end. So, I mean, this is something that our guys just dropped because even in the middle of a war, they felt that that was kind of gilding the lily. You know, if you're going to kill the planet nine times over in the nuclear holocaust, why would you also use an engine that could never be used because it would kill, quote, innocent bystanders? So, Putin gets up there and he proudly boasts that he's now developed this technology, which is death, even if it's turned on. Well, the only thing you could assume, one, is, is whether or not that technology actually exists. But 
the the American designs, I think, go back to the 1960s. Yes, yes, they do. So the one thing you might hope for, what I would hope for in this situation, is that the Russians have made some improvement in the ramjet or the designs that's not going to make it quite as dirty as it was before. I think I've said before, you know, nobody here is really suicidal. Recently, there was there was intel about some very unusual radioactivity picked up in Alaska. And mm-hmm. apparently his guys, Putin's guys, tested this thing in the Arctic. So if it's it's dirty, because if you can pick it up in Alaska with the winds blowing across from Siberia, I mean, there's no real way you can make a clean ramjet, nuclear ramjet, because everything has to go through the pile and it's going to basically emit particles, carbon or uranium oxide or whatever, and it's going to dirty up that exhaust to where it's it's lethal if you're too close. Well, I don't know how they're going to do it, but I would assume that they would try, you know, you would assume that if people really want to be, well, they want to live, that they would make it operable uh, and not make that operation of it a suicide or, or too destructive. But... On the other hand, you know, if you're launching nuclear-armed cruise missiles to deliver a warhead some distance away, then a little radioactivity out the tailpipe is, mm. well, how much are you going to worry about that? Well, but even testing is very dangerous. And in fact, I think that radioactivity that our guys picked up over Alaska is due to his testing program, which would mean that the CIA knows that he's not just bluffing, that they've at least got a technology in test. It could be, or it could be something entirely different. Okay. I mean, here's the idea. In a public speech, would Vladimir Putin or anybody else actually go up and reveal the most important and the most secret weapons programs under development, or even those you have? Now, there's an advantage to making certain things known. There's also an advantage to keeping things quiet. So again, I go back to the point that this was a political speech, essentially a State of the Union speech delivered to the Duma, a kind of pep talk in advance of a presidential election. And that doesn't mean that Putin was making things up. I think all of those weapon systems he's talking about are feasible and no matter how dirty they are and they're on the drawing boards, but where they are and whether they would be used... Uh, that's another question. And I suspect that there are other things out there that are not being talked about. Well, the thing that bothers me, if, if you want to look at the, the concept of being bothered by geopolitical relations, is there's supposed to have been this kind of secret something going on between Trump and Putin. We don't know what it is. We don't know who's on top. We don't know whether it's an equal relationship or Putin has something on Trump, you know, or um, I even heard some people say, that Donald Trump is basically a Manchurian candidate and he is Putin's puppet. Because unlike any other president in the history of the old Cold War, and if we go by the Spence model, the continuing Cold War, or the mainstream model, the re-emerging new Cold War, the American president to sit silent and say nothing when a foreign power, the leading, you know, adversary on this planet with 4,500 nuclear warheads that we know about, when he makes these incredible, grandiose, boastful, and very belligerent statements, our guy, our president, said absolutely nothing. So I think we're in totally new territory. Or maybe saying nothing was the right thing to say. Give me that argument. Well, you know, it comes back, I guess, to the the Buddhist idea that sometimes you act, and I'm not a Buddhist, but I've heard the idea that you act by not acting. In other words, one of the things that Trump seems to do is to constantly react to things. He's a guy who tends to respond to people's tweets. Uh, why wouldn't he come out swinging at Hell, Putin he responds case? to Saturday Night Live. Look at how he took out after Alec Baldwin. I know. <laughs> but... So- so if the if the leader of the old Soviet Union slash new Russia basically threatens nuclear annihilation with five new weapon systems, you'd think just for his own constituency, you know, right wing people, people, you know, patriotic country first, homeland, that kind of thing. You'd think he'd say something that they well, demand he say something. Putin didn't 
threaten nuclear annihilation. He basically did reiterate that if Russia was attacked, that it would respond with nuclear weapons, which it has. Mm. But that's been the same for the last 50 years, 60 yeah. years. Well, from the Russian standpoint. And oh, problem, let me let, let okay, me sure. one other other question. Yeah. He doesn't really have to run for the pre- he's not going to lose the damn presidency. He's not appealing to a constituency. So why is he, you know, doing the uh, Theodore Roosevelt thing in in reverse, you know, talking very big and carrying we don't know what kind of stick because he doesn't have to do this to win his reelection. He doesn't have to do it, but that doesn't mean that he doesn't want to do it. And again, you don't take these things for granted. Which means their messages to the West. His real message was not to the Russian people, his electorate. It was to the West. It was to President Donald J. Trump. No, but that again assumes that Trump is the only person in the West who's listening. There's Andrea Merkel. There's uh, there's there's Britain, Italy, the rest of NATO. NATO, I think there's a tendency sometimes to from the American standpoint, to maybe make ourselves a bit more important than we necessarily are. Mm -hmm. I mean, the world isn't just Russia and the United States. There's also, keep in mind, China, which is another major player in this. There are a whole variety of other states as well. I don't know. I, I think I'm more inclined to think that Putin's speech was primarily designed for domestic consumption, and it was designed to send a kind of chill through the backs of the Western Europeans. I mean, again, I don't think that he revealed anything that our own espionage or people in Washington or the Pentagon didn't know already. I don't think anybody was terribly surprised by anything that he came up with. But again, I'll bet that there are other Russian systems that he did not talk about that could be a surprise. Mm. So from from Moscow's version of where American Russian relations recently went wrong and I'll, I'm going to stick to my claim that there's always been a kind of cold war. That's just one of the things that comes from two large potentially hegemonic states existing on the same planet. Well let, be, let, let, right. let me stop you there because okay. Russia is not a large, I mean, physically it's large, but in yeah. terms of economic power, in terms of geopolitical power, it's the, it's, it's econ, it, it, its economy is the size of California. Mm-hmm. So how can they, the only reason they're equal is because they have the same number of warheads roughly that we do. Right. And, and so that makes them, what you just said is the exact reason as to why talking about the number of warheads you have and your nuclear deterrent is important. Russia has a far weaker economy. It has half the population. Its vast territory is not an advantage. It's a disadvantage because much of it is difficult to defend or indefensible. It makes moving anything from one part of the country to the other more time-consuming and more expensive. Size is in many ways a disadvantage to Russia in this case. But that's one of the things that they're acutely aware of. I mean, even if you compare Russia to the EU, which is collectively the biggest economy in the world, and if you look at that and you figure out the EU has got a population of almost 500 million people and Russia's got something under 150 million, and I think its you know, economy is one-eighth or one-ninth the size, and that collectively the EU has, uh, or just NATO, has more conventional military forces and at least an equal amount of nukes, who's supposed to be afraid of who? Mm-hmm. I mean, there is this, again, when you, when you leave aside the sort of false picture that geographic size can give, this sort of exaggeration of Russian strength simply through its geographic reach, they definitely do see themselves in a vulnerable position. They know that they are, in other respects, the weaker power, and therefore what that means is that their nuclear deterrent is absolutely more important to them than it is, relatively speaking, to us. But aren't we operating under the the so-called mad doctrine, mutual assured destruction, even in the 21st century? In other words, if, if either side launches a nuclear war, the other side will basically eliminate them from the planet and will eliminate the planet, by the way, as a kind of a side effect. So what is all this boasting about new weapon systems when the traditional ones, the old ones, are perfectly fine for killing the human species? Part of it is to 
I think, add to the, the concept of stealth. Well, the, the whole issue here comes back as to who hits the other first and with what kind of force. And the dream which nuclear war planners on both sides have had, you know, since the 1950s and 1960s is whether or not you could deliver a devastating enough first strike that would largely negate your opponent's ability to strike back. I mean, that's the fear. If you use nukes and your opponent uses them, yes, it's mutually assured destruction when you have huge arsenals. But if in some way, if you could find a way, stealthy or otherwise, to eliminate most of the threat of a retaliatory strike, then that was always seen as one of those, you know, that was the desirable thing. That was the position you wanted to put yourself in because that would negate the other side's advantage. It would take away mm. mutually assured destruction. It would simply mean that it would be a total victory or a near total victory of one side over another in a single strike. Well, this is so, where another, another part of that echo in, in those speakers is really killing me. There's some way we can diminish that or put a pillow over them or something. Is this any better? Oh, well, we'll find out. Yeah, I, I okay. don't hear myself now at all. What was so bizarre about his presentation is, you know, following on what you just said, NORAD, the central Colorado complex, just north of me here, buried under Cheyenne Mountain, directing all our nuclear retaliatory forces, the triad, the land-based missiles, the submarines, the aircraft, the bombers. Instead, in his computer graphic, you know, kind of extravaganza, he targets six missile warheads on Florida like he's attacking Mar-a-Lago where Trump goes on where I, I is he there to no, know he, he went back to Washington I mean that is so bizarre because I'm I'm sorry folks but Florida is not a strategic target you know even if central command is there that's it that's irrelevant in a nuclear all-out war it's not that place that you want to target you want to target uh, Maelstrom or NORAD or Washington, D.C., decapitate, you know, the government itself. You're not going to target Florida. Why is he showing Florida if he's boasting to his own people and to people in the West that he's got impenetrable power now? Well, OK, keep in one thing. Putin didn't design the graphics. He no, may he have authorized them. He authorized, authorized them, but he may have given an authorization. But it, it isn't as if it's it's a, a personal creation, or that even that he said put Florida in it. The reason why Florida was there probably is that geographically it's recognizable. It's it's something which you know Florida is a peninsula. It has a particular shape to it. Mm -hmm. It's one of those things that you can recognize as Florida. Whereas if you're showing just a large expanse of the American Midwest, I don't know, is that Iowa? Is that Nebraska? If I have lines, it wouldn't tell me <laughs> that way. So it's just one of those big square things in the middle of the country. I, I've heard very, I mean, the idea that Florida was simply a recognizable geographic image to use is makes the most sense to me. But I guess I have heard people argue that you know, this was a veil threat to Mar-a-Lago uh, they were going to get more a lago. Others thought that it had something to do with uh, Disney World. Okay, you know why else would you attack Florida <laughs> unless you're out to destroy Disney World? Uh, someone was arguing, yes, we want to destroy Disney World because that would uh, completely collapse American morale and American okay. economy. American economy, but you know neither one of those are going. I to have a much more far out theory. I'm going to save it toward, okay. until toward okay. the end of the show. All I don't right. want because I think we need to lay more foundation. For the substance of things, because Putin really wants to make Russia number one again. He has been so suffering emotionally from the fact of the, the so-called fall of the Soviet Union. He mentions it constantly. The fact that, you know, they're not they're a shadow of their former, you know, pre, uh, 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 you know, uh, wall, uh, Berlin Wall fall and the whole collapse of, you know, the Soviet Union under under Gorbachev that one would think that there's a lot of other stuff going on that's really nitty-gritty real politique in terms of building up Russia compared to the United States or to NATO countries, et cetera. And I think we're going to go into that uh, somewhat later in, in the show. But there's got to be more to it than simply targeting you know, the president's vacation resort. 
No, I, I don't think the Mar-a-Lago thing has anything to do with it. And another possibility is that in Putin's talk, he was talking about the use of, you know, the ability, you know, whether it's a nuclear cruise missile or other long-range ICBMs that could strike at targets by flying over the South Pole. That is, by approaching targets from a different direction, a different mm -hmm. trajectory. And that, I think, might some way connect with Florida because what it shows really are these warheads coming in from the South. And one of the ways you could identify the American South is from Florida. So I think that may be another connection there. Well, the only problem with that model is that you've got and at the height of the Cold War, you know, we, we built the Bemuse system, this this line of radar stations across mm. Canada. <clears throat> I think there were three separate lines of looking for missiles coming over the pole, that kind of thing. Now, of course, we have incredibly sophisticated satellites in low Earth orbit, in geosynchronous orbit. We're looking at every square spot of the planet 24-7. You know, it used to be said that, you know, a sparrow does not fall, that God does not see. Now it's said that the same thing happens because of NORAD. So the idea of you were going to sneak attack by coming around under the pole. In fact, it was so interesting. I was watching on RT this afternoon the entire Putin speech. And when he showed that graphic showing the trajectory of these things looping around the South Pole and coming up on us from kind of the, the, the unseen quarter, mm -hmm. the, the audience, this very interesting hand-picked audience, burst into cheers and started applauding. I mean, these guys are, are are on the edge if they think they can win a nuclear war. And is that what he's trying to bolster, the idea that the old Russia can win in this kind of a conflict? I think he's more interested in showing that we can fight back and we can fight back effectively, that we can defend ourselves. But that, again, I think reinforces my contention, the fact the, the way in which they responded to it and the fact that it was designed to be shown to them initially, they're the real audience it was intended for, is that it was basically for domestic consumption, is to put forward a tough, competent image. Uh, that's something that Putin is always prided. I mean, this is a guy, remember, who would take his shirt off, you know, and wrestle tigers or something. I mean, he's always seen hunting. He, he's very interested in portraying this image of toughness and of competency. Um, he also likes staying calm. I mean, this is you, you wouldn't find Vladimir Putin angrily getting into a, I don't know, a, a, a Twitter war with Lindsay Lohan or something over something that was said. <laughs> Donald Trump, you can kind of imagine that that might happen. Okay, he can get drawn into those things. So part of it here, and I think part of looking at the dimensions of these two men, you're dealing with two very different types of personalities. Uh, I don't think these guys are fundamentally alike in many ways, except that they they are through very the fortunes they are the heads of the you know, two of one or both of the most powerful countries in the world. I also don't think that Putin has any illusions about Russia becoming the most powerful country in the world. I think he does have a desire to see to it maintain its its, its political and its economic and its geopolitical independence. That is, it remains a separate entity, uh, that it is not drawn into a kind of uh, UA, EU combination uh, that it doesn't exactly, I mean, let's put it this way, from his standpoint, he doesn't want to live in a world which is under American hegemony, which is under an unquestioned or an unchallenged American hegemony. Neither well, isn't does that China. The primary, isn't that yeah. the primary reason why China refuses really to do anything about North Korea? Because they're upset at the idea of American troops on the border of China if South Korea expands and becomes one Korea again? Yeah. Of course, if Korea unified and there was no longer a DMZ or a North Korea, then what would be the purpose of maintaining any American troops there since exactly. they would exactly no longer it, be a threat? Exactly. And what could troops do in a nuclear era? Right. But does that mean that uh, Chinese believe that if Korea were to be peacefully reunified, that that would mean that American troops would leave Korea? The thing is, they don't believe that. They think that some other excuse would be found in order to maintain them there and perhaps even expand them. So now, is that an emotional thing or is, is that based on any kind of real logic? In other words, how could a unified Korea, even with American troops, threaten China with what, two billion, two and a half billion people? 
it would be substantially larger than it was. It would be a South Korea that would not be offset by a perpetually hostile North Korea. So one of the things that North Korea does is that it consumes most of South Korea's attention and it consumes all of its military attention. Now, if there was a unified, non-communist, Western-aligned Korea, a Japan, in other words, directly attached to the Asian continent in Chinese territory, mm -hmm. and that in some way it maintained a military alliance with the United States and even the presence of American troops, the Chinese wouldn't like that in the same way that they wouldn't like any foreign power having military bastion on their periphery. I mean, they would ask a very simple question. Why, are the, why is that there? It is, it is clearly aimed against us. Now, is that kind of paranoid? Yes. On well, the other hand, because economically, stationing troops in Korea for 50 plus years has been an economic drain. And they're not, all they are is a tripwire. They're basically sacrificial lambs right. if war ever breaks out. Well, they're an economic drain to the U.S., they're an economic boon to South Korea. Well, that's true. Yeah. The other side. Okay, I don't know why that started. Oh, sorry about that. Actually, that's probably a good time to break because we are at the at the uh, top of the hour. Yeah. My guest this morning, hold it right there, Richard. My guest this morning is Dr. Richard Spence, and we're trying to figure out why it looks like in some quarters we're we're building toward the unthinkable, which is some kind of thermonuclear conflagration between the two largest nuclear powers on the planet. There's something about this that just doesn't strike me as making sense. Again, it almost looks like, may I say it, distraction? Let me bounce some ideas off, Richard, when we come back. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll have access to a private chat server that member used to chat about the show during the show, and you will have a direct channel to post a question that will be read on the air to the guest. And you'll have a place to post questions during our open hailing frequencies. We realize that not everyone wants to call in live, and this gives you an easy way to participate in a live show without having to participate. Club 19.5 members can use this private chat to talk about the shows, ask questions, suggest new guests, and I may even pop on from time to time to answer specific questions. Also, the entire Bridge crew is in these participating chat channels, so you can interact with them as well. You'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.